0: We're in the book of Ezekiel tonight, chapter eleven. A little bit different tonight. We've been, thus far, I think, taking a, a, a chapter a sermon, chapter a week, and this chapter actually has a nice break. It w- runs one through thirteen, and what we're going to look there is that. What do I have? The judgment of leaders, and it will actually be apostate leaders will receive divine justice. And then 14 through 25 is the theme of, um, of mercy. And I, I thought rather than commingling those two in one sermon, that would treat it separately. So tonight, just 1 through um, 13. Hear, hear God's holy word. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up, brought me into the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. Behold, there were 25 men at the entrance of the gate, and among them I saw... Jazaniah, son of Azor, Pelatiah, son of ben- Benaniah, leaders of the people, said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and they give evil advice in this city. Who say, Is, it, is not the time near to build houses? The city is the pot and we are the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them, son of man, prophesy. And thus says the Spirit of the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said, To me, say, Thus says the Lord, So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. You have multiplied your slain in the city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of your city, are the flesh, and the city is the pot, but I will bring you out of it. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares. And I will bring you out of the midst of the city, and deliver you into the hands of strangers, and execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you to the border of Israel, so that you shall know that I am the Lord. The city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it. But I will judge you to the border of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Now it came about as I prophesied that Pelatia, son of Benaniah, died and I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said Alas Lord God will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end Let's pray Father we thank you for the day of rest we we need it we pray that those who are especially tired in their labors lord uh, weary perhaps even and those of us perhaps who just um weary of the battle that you would invigorate us here at the end of the day and that this passage your judgment passage in a strange way might um produce hope uh, to those of us who are vessels of mercy glorify your name in all the earth we pray in christ's name amen I've mentioned this and you know this if you read the book of Ezekiel and for that matter if you read the read the major and the minor prophets um many times we come to say the this is a major prophet a major prophet would be um Isaiah certainly sometimes we think oh the book of Isaiah wonderful passages we think of Isaiah uh, 45 to 55 the servant passages and we think oh beautiful oh Isaiah 9 beautiful beautiful there are many beautiful passages sp- sprinkled throughout Isaiah sprinkled throughout the book of Ezekiel but when you when you preach through a whole book um you run into something else which is the way that God wrote the book what you'll see is that there are these wonderful when we say wonderful we usually mean mercy passages but those books, major and minor prophets, are filled with what we've been looking at week in and week out. We are clearly correct when we say a fairly dominant theme to the book of, of Ezekiel is what we're looking at here is, um, is uh, the judgment of God upon sinners. God does not judge or condemn those people that have not sinned. So the people that will receive God's recompense. It will be a recompense by a righteous God for the breach of God's law, whether omission or commission. So clearly God teaches us in his word that he is a holy God. He hates sin. He can't approve of it. And he will judge the sinner, the moral agent. Sometimes we say, well, God loves the, the sinner but hates the sin, as if, as if we can separate the moral activity from the moral agent. What we're seeing here, and I'm not going to enter into too far afield it's impossible for God to judge sin in the abstract. God judges the actual participant in the law breaking, which is the law breaker. And so clearly the main theme in the book of, one main theme is this holy God does in fact judge sinners. And I would say, and of course we believe this, we're Christians. We've been here for what, 11 sermons, something like that. Say so clearly God judges sinners. Beloved, I would argue this um, and particularly maybe because I have funerals on my mind. I would say the better part of humanity lives as if there is no God and I would say the better part of humanity lives as if they're never going to come into the judgment of God. They, they, they live and die as if they'll never be judged by God for their sins. Um, I, I, I think I'm correct with that. That's why Moses says in Psalm 90, oh God, uh, teach us to number our days. Uh, because there is coming a day when it will be times up. Well, certainly the, the theme is God judges sinners. The other theme that runs through the book of Ezekiel is what we're going to be looking at hopefully next week, if I have a next week, if we have a next week, uh, which is um, God also has mercy. And upon what kind of people do God have, have mercy? If he judges sinners, what kind of people does he have mercy? Uh, Mercy is for people that have demerited any favor with God. Mercy is completely contrary to any merit by us. So when God has mercy, he has to have mercy on sinners. If he's giving something to someone that is deserving of it, uh, that's a payment. But when we're looking at what we receive, uh, when we do not receive God's justice, uh, we say we, we are receiving God's mercy. It's an aspect of his free gift. And it's not as if to say that God doesn't judge a certain class of sinner. He just leaves them alone and winks at their sin. It's it's not that at all. Grace and mercy is not winking at sin. God is a three times holy God. He cannot wink at sin. All, all, all sin must be judged. Either we will be the ones that pay for our sin. As we look here, these apostate judges and, leaders and these apostate people, they are their justice assuagers. They will receive God's justice. But the class of people that God is alluding to, and he'll talk about later, I'm going to bring you into captivity, I'm going to save you, I'm going to restore you. You are vessels of mercy. The vessel of, of mercy, as I say, isn't God winking at their sin, it's actually God attributing their sin, which is, deserves justice, death, to a substitute sinner, which, of course, is Jesus. So we have justice for some sinners and then mercy for other sinners because we have one that pays for our sins. Those are the two themes that run through the entire book. I would say almost every chapter have those t- two themes running through it. Um, and, and clearly we thank God um that God has mercy on some sinners and we find our just, the justice of God being satisfied on our behalf um, by our uh, Christ. So one group receives what justice demands and the other group, Christ receives what justice demands. And, and, and we find that even here in a seminal way. Now, when you were to step back on those two themes, justice and then mercy, which theme seems most dominant to you in the book of Ezekiel or even in this passage? Which one? Justice or mercy? I would have to say, when we come to, I felt this way preaching through the book of Isaiah, um, the judgment portions of the prophets, at least to me, they seem to be the more overwhelming percentage of God's revelation, and they seem painfully clear. We need to put our Christological grace faith lenses on when we're looking at the golden thread of mercy and, and kindness and love. But, but when we take, we could even take our specs off and we look at this passage and we think judgment 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 now we can't shirk from the truth so when we have family members and friends let's say they're not believers shocking and they say well this you believe in a god is just judgment crazy it's just judgment 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 we we should not say well that that's not true the, the Bible only has, like, two sentences of judge, justice and ju- judgment, and the rest of it is, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's sympathetic, simpatico. We would be not telling the truth. So, if a person with a casual glance at this book, they would say, boy, it seems like judgment's jumping off every other verse. Now, I mentioned sometimes folks without faith, when they come to judgment passages, they conclude something like this. Well, the God of the Bible, he's kind of like this tyrannical, judgment-crazy God, and since I don't believe in that, I don't want to have anything to do with this judgmental, wrath-bearing God, therefore I won't worship him. Something like that. Now, I want you to think of something. We're looking at this thematically, that God is judging Sinners, in this case, particularly the leaders, God only judge, judges sinners. Another word for a sinner is is a is a, is a criminal. <laughs> we are we're criminals against God's law. Would you expect, if you've ever been in, if you've ever been in, uh, I don't know, if you're a judge or if you've been on a jury or if you're a cop, if you were a good cop or a good judge, would you expect the guilty criminal to say good things about the good judge? No. What are they trying to do? They're trying to besmirch the character of God. So when you have people say, oh, no, 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 that's the judgment. There's no judgment. There's only judgment in the Old Testament. There's no judgment in the New Testament. No, no, no. There's no judgment in the New Testament. The unbeliever, the Bible tells us in Romans 1, in Romans 2, in Romans 8, They are spiritually and morally prejudiced against God. They hate the judge. They're guilty and condemned before the judge. And therefore, they seek to dismiss the judge's authority and rights over them by criticizing the judge. But I have a question. When the unbeliever rejects judgment for their sin, does it stop God's judgment for their sin? These people, they were apostate Jews. They said they believed, but they didn't believe. And they said throughout the passages, God doesn't see us, we're going off in the woods and we're going to worship our false gods. God doesn't even care. There's nothing he can do. If a person rejects God judges and rejects the judgment of God, does that mean that God cannot or will not judge them? No. No. If you told Helen Keller... And I don't mean to be impious or flippant. There's a train coming down the tracks. Does she know what a train is? No. Can she see it? Can she hear it? No, she can't see it. She can't hear it. Does it mean there's not a train coming down the tracks? For the unbeliever to say, well, I, I just don't, I don't believe in judgment. Just don't believe it. Don't think I'm ever going to stand before a holy God. Don't think he's going to condemn me for my sins. Just don't believe it. Beloved, that, this is what this passage is here to make us. I would argue to some degree... This is what funerals are meant for. There's a place in the book of Ephesians, wake up, O sleeper. Wake up. Wake up. We only have a limited amount of time to do real business with God. And when I say real business, is we need to make sure that we're in Christ, our sin bearer. But we're looking at the justice of God and we are seeing the blindness of unbelief, denying that God will judge them. And as I say, the other theme that runs through and more prevalent in the next passage is, is, the, um, is the mercy of God, but it's, the mercy of God is something that only the believer can see. The unbeliever says when they read the Bible, I don't see the mercy of God. For the person that rejects Jesus Christ, why can they not see the mercy of God in the Bible? Because the mercy of God can only be seen in Christ and through Christ. So the person who says I reject Christ and I only see God in the Bible as a God of judgment, they're actually correct. To die apart from Christ is to to see God as judge. The only way to see the mercy of God in the Bible and then experimentally in our lives is to have faith which joins us to Christ. And so the moment you are subdued by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ and he does need to subdue our wayward spirit and we have the Spirit-wrought faith and we come to faith in the Jesus in Jesus Christ, then we see all over the scripture. Do you not know this is true? There's mercy, there's mercy, there's mercy, there's mercy, there's the promise of restoration, there's the promise of freedom everywhere. But before you had faith, you read the you looked to the Bible and said, I don't see do anything but judgment. The moment you are born again, mercy, 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 mercy. Genesis 3, the curse, you're going to die. What do we see with eyes of faith? But they're not dead. And God clothed them. God killed the animals and clothed them and cast them out and give them a promise that the seed of the woman will come and will save his people. So mercy. So we see the justice of God, the mercy of God. And um, we see those things written large in this passage. Now, what we're seeing particularly in the section that before us tonight Not just the judgment of God on sinners per se. I wanted to spend just the the remainder of our time looking at the judgment of God on a particular class of sinner. And I don't mean white, black, rich, poor, none of that. The class of sinner that I want us to look at that God will judge is found in verses 1 and verse 13. These are the leaders. These are the leaders in Israel, and what we, what, what we are looking at here is those that have been given places of authority, which is why we read the Fifth Commandment. The Fifth Commandment is an authority passage. Everyone on the planet, um, born again or unconverted, we all have an authority problem. Everybody. Every little kid. Look at a little kid. A, a two-year-old baby. And when you say the one word to the two-year-old, it sends them into fits. No, no. And they go, (laughs) that's an authority problem. But when you say to the 22-year-old kid, or the 52-year-old kid, or the 72-year-old kid, (laughs) no, we have the same reaction. So the fifth commandment is an authority passage. And it talks about superiors, inferiors, equals. And what we're looking at is the sin of superiors, people that God has placed in positions of power in his people, among his people, and they have proved to be unbelievers. And actually, rather than leading their people away from sin and towards God and Christ and holiness, they've done the exact opposite. But let's just talk a little bit about the basic idea of, um, of, a, of a leader. Uh, God is, and I'm going to be very, very br- br- briefer, I, I hope I'm briefer, God has created, in the beginning, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, two individuals. Obviously, he created Adam first from, from dirt. He creates Eve out of Adam. So he creates individuals with a, with individual body, individual spirit. And then subsequent to the creation of Adam and Eve, God creates all human beings, excepting Jesus Christ, through ordinary generation. So we are created individuals. So we are all, in one way, unique individuals individuals. However, even though we are unique individuals, God has not created human beings to live individually. Some of us are more reclusive just by nature. I am, which is crazy that I'm a minister, but I am more reclusive by by nature. I feel very, I spend massive amounts of time alone. Most of my life is spelled, spent alone with a book in a room, and I'm wired for that. Uh, but nevertheless, God has created human beings to live in society with other human beings. And there are three societies in which, general societies, in which God has placed them, individuals the family, husband, wife, children, extended family, and so on, uh, the state, and the church. And my point with bringing uh, out that is this reason God has not given any individual all gifts, all, 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 all authorities, all, all callings. Um, we have, individually, we have particular gifts and calling, and then we're joined in a society to other individuals who have different or complementary gifts in callings and so on. And so God has made us that we need other human beings in those three societies in order to carry out the will of God in our lives. And I, I, I may have mentioned the husband and the wife, but think of it like this. Adam, an individual; Eve, an individual. But they're created for society. They're created for one another. And when we think about the idea of leadership, it's kind of a long intro. I don't want us to think leader here, and then like whatever they are under the leader, they're just like bubble gum on their chute. I don't want us to think like that. We tend to think like that: high, low. And the and the, every once in a while, not too much. I'll meet a husband who will read Ephesians chapter five, but not really. And he'll go, "I'm the leader in this joint." I I'm the head here, and the woman is, she's down there, she's the slave girl in my, and I'm thinking of a Jackie Gleason skit. And you are the slave girl, and I am the master, and I am here, and you're there. That's a silly man, whoever thought that. The husband, by God's design, is the leader. And by God's design, God has made his wife to be his leader, his helper, his friend, his comforter, all of those things, but they're complementary. Adam is not good to be alone, and he needs the wife, and the wife needs him. Yes, he's the leader, but my point with this is this. He is a servant under God, and he is to serve God by serving the wife and his children. She is a servant under God to serve her husband and the children and so on, but they need one another. Yes, there is one called by God to be the leader. One is called by God to be led and to help the leader, but they need one another. The value of each... The leader is not over or more valuable than the one being led. The husband's not more valuable than the wife. The wife is not more valuable than the husband. I think it was Augustine that said "The sum of the, that the two together, the sum of them is greater than the whole or something like that. It's a form of synergism that, that the leader and, the, and those led, uh, they have been created by God for one another. And so when we come here and we're talking about the notion of leadership, my long introduction is this reason: not only do we have a authority with problem, a problem with authority. Obviously, it's in connection with leaders. And when we're looking at here, we think, "What leaders in the church? There are no leaders in the church. We're all equal, even Stephen." Or there are no leaders in the state. <laughs> we're all even Stephen. But that's not true, beloved. That's not true. Ontologically, we're even Stephen. We're sinners before God. If we're saved ontologically, we're equally loved by God. That's all true. But economically, and I don't mean money, I mean roles. We're all over the lot. We're all over the lot. There are some who are called to lead. There are some, some who are our superiors in life, in some instance, some who are inferiors. We are their superior, and there are equals. And what we're looking at here are people that have been given a place of authority over other people, who are abusing that authority and they've been faithless to their charge. And so it's it's not wrong to embrace the Bible's concept of superior, inferior, and equal as regards to economic roles or calling or so on. Think of it like this and then we'll jump into these particular leaders. Are you offended that a high school boy that scoops ice cream for the summer job makes 10 bucks an hour versus the guy that went to school for 20 years to be a brain surgeon makes a half a million dollars a year. Are you offended? Do you not say, of course, that makes utter sense. One man is ridiculously gifted and the other boy goes like this. That's why he makes that. Again, no ontological difference, but there is an economic difference. So God has created us to live in societies We all exist for the glory of God. The leader exists to lead and to serve God by his leading. And those who are led exist to serve God by our being obedient um, in the forms of society that he places us. Now, the leaders in particular view here, uh, these are the men that God has established to lead his people. Israel, actually in particular, I think it's Judah Judah's the one that's going to be taken away into Babylonian captivity. Israel has already gone off to Assyrian captivity. Now, when we're looking at verse 1, what does it call them? Princes. um, These are the five men, the leaders in the people. Some of your texts may say the princes of uh, the people. At this particular time in in redemptive history, in the book of Ezekiel, um, Israel was a theocracy. When I say a theocracy, It means that the church and the state were kind of one. There was still a division of labor between, say, the civil part of the theocracy and then the more religious part of the theocracy. But a theocracy is church and state are run by the law of God. That's a theocracy. Um, Israel was a theocracy. America is not a theocracy. Um, I think there have been theocratic... There have been attempts to develop theocracies. I think to some degree... Plymouth, In, the, in the, the, the land of my birth, the, the town of my mother's birth, Plymouth. I think Plymouth Plantation was somewhat um, an experiment to create a theocracy that didn't work. But I, I don't think we should live in a theocracy in the New Testament epoch, but that's another story. But here, here it is a theocracy, that the church and the state, or the state, the more civil aspect and the more uh, religious aspect are governed by God. And my point with that is this: when we're looking at these leaders, there are some men that say, "Well, this is probably like the twenty, the seventy elders that are busy governing the civil, the more civil or si- civil or civil aspect of society." And there are other men like myself that see these leaders not specifically running the civil part of the culture, but more along the lines of the priests. A couple of these men from the book of uh, Numbers are in the list of the Levites. But but be that as it may, God has people that are gifted administratively and so on to to administer the state, and then God has called people and gifted them with commensurate gifts uh, to govern, let's say, here, the church part of things, priests um, under the family of Aaron and then under the rest of the Levitical uh, families. Um, the Hebrew word f- for leader here is sar, S-A-R. I I know I'm anglicizing it. It's sar. It can mean chief, which would have the civil connotation. It can mean ruler, prince, captain, civil connotation. I take this to be, because we see the 25 men um, that are bowing down to the stun in the temple, I take this to be um, the priest that we have seen before, and I'll bring that text out earlier. But let me read Isaiah 4323 which is why I think we're looking at apostate unbelieving priests Isaiah 43:27 your first forefather sinned and your spokesmen have transgressed against me so I will po- pollute the princes of the sanctuary that that's these men the princes of the san- sanctuary I will consign Jacob to the ban second um, chronicles 36. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and of the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. They have defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And so we're seeing God's condemnation of those men, in particular, that he is called to lead the people of God away from their sin and lead them in the path of righteousness and towards God in Christ. And what these men are doing is the exact opposite. They're doing the exact opposite. Now, what's interesting is, I would argue that these people have become religious formalists. We've seen the religious formalists in previous chapters. And what that means is, for the people, we're saying, the temple, the temple, we have the temple. And for these apostate priests, said priests, they said, we're priests. We're ministers. Everything goes okay. But you're worshiping the sun, and you're committing abominations but I'm an office bearer I'm a member of the church I've been baptized I take the Lord's Supper I've been circumcised in the Old Testament we, we have these externals that's religious formalism that's having a form of religion without without the spirit of God without the spirit of Christ and the Bible says this regarding I, I wanted to read this from the larger catechism the Bible says this this is what's required of the superior for towards those under them. It is required of superiors according to that power they have received from God and that relation wherein they stand. This is what these men are required to do. This is what these men as priests, as ministers are required to do for the people under their charge. They are required to love the people, to pray for them, and to bless them and to instruct them, to counsel and admonish them countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, obeying God, and discounting, countenancing, reproving such as do ill, protecting them, providing for, for them all things necessary for their soul and for their body, and by a grave, wise, holy, exemplary life to procure the glory of God to them. That's what these men were required to do. To love the people of God, to teach the people of God, the ways of God, the ways of Christ, holiness. And when the people of God were sinning, they were to correct them propositionally, even by their own life. Their life was meant to teach the people that they, these priests, did indeed love God, and they were promoting Christ's cause and promoting holiness. So to preach with their preaching and to preach with their lives. That's the they were required to do. That's their charge. And here's the sin from our larger catechism what are the sins of superiors what are the sins of these men against the people of Israel besides the neglect of the duties required of them in inordinate seeking of themselves if you read ezekiel 34 these blind guides were busy making themselves fat sleek rich they were not taking care of the flock of god they were taking care of themselves seeking their own glory, seeking their own ease, seeking their own profit. How many, I, I, I tremble to think of ministers that are not binding up the broken that God has sent to them, and they're just living to their own ease. That is a sin of a religious superior over the people that God has given to him. It's a sin um, to favor, to encourage them in that which is evil, and discourage them in that which is good. That's exactly what these people were doing. Uh, I'm just going to reference it because I don't want to go too too long. These particular people we have met earlier, that these people were bowing down in a prior chapter. They were bowing down to the sun. These are priests. They are the chosen mediators between God and man, as it were, for the people. And they're, they're in the temple. They turn their back to God's. And they turn their face towards the sun and they bow down. And they're the leaders. And what do the people do when when they're looking at their leaders? Oh, okay. All right. So the Lord, the Lord's out now. God is out. And so what should we do? Should we turn our backs on him and look at the sun and call the sun our God and bow down and worship the sun? And they did that. Who's guilty in that transaction? One, the leader. What about the person that does it? The person that does it. Who's more guilty? The leader. The leader. To much is given, much is required. For the husband that says, I'm the religious leader in the house. I agree, you are. And you're held to a greater greater judgment. So if your wife and your kiddos go off the reservation in your house, <laughs> you you have a greater responsibility. But what happens if they go off and they, they live in sin? They're going to bear their responsibility too. But we own part of that. We own part of that. These leaders have taught these people to commit apostasy. Some of us have said, well, you know, I learned how to, I learned how to cuss from a person teaching me how to cuss. I learned how to fight or drink from people teaching me how to cuss. Cuss and drink and fight, maybe that's so. Too much is given, much is required, but it doesn't. It doesn't excuse the person that is the the subordinate in that relationship from their sin. The people that of God will bear their own sin. Oftentimes, we like to excuse our sin. Well, I'm not the leader. What do you want from me? I'm not the leader. The Bible says that we should obey God and not man. Acts four, Acts chapter five. Even in the military, I, I don't, I'm not totally up to date on a, little, a lot of military stuff. If your commander gives you an unlawful command, you're supposed to say no. If your husband gives you an unlawful, biblically unlawful command, you're supposed to say no, and vice versa. But what we're looking at is the, is the abuse of this position of authority by these priests and actually not teaching the people of God to love God, But they're actually teaching the people of God to hate God. And he says, essentially, to listen to the Gentiles, which is to be a heathen. And and God is displeased with it. Now, I want to say some applicatory words. We're looking at apostate leaders about to be judged. What does that teach us about the nature of the church? Does the church, as an institution, does the church save? Does this church save you? By becoming a member of this church, will you be saved? If I put water of baptism on your head, will I save you by putting water on your head? Will I do it? No, the church doesn't save. Ministers don't save. Priests don't save. This is is what's taught here. So when people say, well, the church is salvific, in a sense, because we present the Savior, but the priest, the minister, the sacraments, they don't do it. Only Christ saves. So this is this is telling us that the institutional church does not save. The only thing that we could be attributed to be saving is that we present the savior. And clearly we're being taught something else, which is very practical. And I, I do I do I do wish we would all take this to heart. We live in a day and an age and in, of information. I would argue we get too much information. I wish I wish maybe the internet would crash for like about like six months. We would all probably be much, much saner by the time. It, I know for the first two days, we'd probably be crazy. I went many years ago to visit my sister's house on Cape Cod, and we were. she was going to let us use it. And we got there, and she called me and said, I just called to tell you that we shut off the Internet there on the Cape. And in, initially, I, I had chest pains, thinking, no Internet. No Internet for a week. It, it was like I was a kid. We had to sit around and talk to one another. It was wonderful. But my point with that is this. In this time of information overload, Christians, we listen to so many religious teachers. Oh, everybody has their favorite. My favorite guru on the internet. My favorite Christian guru. We need to be super careful who we submit to for religious teaching because of this. These people are teachers. They have been appointed by God, and they don't know God, let alone the people that appoint themselves as ministers or ministresses, whatever the lady ministers. We need to be super careful to test every spirit, to be Bereans, and be careful who you put yourself under by way of religious instruction. Be very, very careful. Be discerning. Use the Bible And then rely upon Christians that you think are discerning as well. And the last thing I'm going to say, and I want to say something positive, is um, in in the very end, God brings the judgment. And he brings it on one of the leaders. And he is a Levite. And he drops over dead. We're we're learning over and over and over again, the wages of sin is death, the wages of sin is death. And this is back to my my original point. Most of us live like we're never going to die. Most of us never plan for our death. Most of us never do. Even when, even if someone comes and says, "Hey, listen, you have three months, you have six months," I, I have watched so many people die. It's not even funny. By the time you get there, it's like you didn't even, you never even heard them tell you for the past year or the past three months. It's like it catches you by surprise. You're not even prepared at all. And all of a sudden, God says, "I'm going to judge sin. I'm going to judge sin. I'm going to judge sin." Gone, gone, gone. There's no mañana. There's no, well, I'm going to go to church. Then I'll remember about Jesus. Maybe then I'll do serious business with my soul. But until then, no, 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 no. God tells us over and over and over again. It's appointed by God for men to die. And then after death comes judgment. We plan our vacations more than we plan our death. And this man was unprepared to meet God. My job as a minister, I believe this with my whole soul. That the Puritans would say, my job is to prepare people to die and meet God. This man was not prepared to meet to die and meet God, because he was found in his sins. He wasn't found in Christ. We're all sinners. We've all been idolaters. I, someone was said something about adulteresses and adulterers, and I said to the person, we're all adulteresses and adulteresses. We're all unclean. Every last one of us is unclean. Everyone. We're all unchaste. Everyone. Thought, word, and deed. Everyone. And the only way for us to be prepared is to be found in Jesus Christ. The right response, when we see the judgment of God upon the sinner, the right response is Ezekiel. And what does he do? Oh God, God, will you bring an end? Will you, will you bring judgment on all sinners? Will, we, will this be the end of us? It's the strange person that could come to death or t- as an expression of God's judge, judgment, and, and which we do. We see it. And then what happens five seconds later? Y'all want to go out for Chinese food? Y'all want to go out for Italian food? Boom! It makes, it makes an impression on us about for five seconds. We see it right in front of us. Wham! And we think, well, if I saw it, boy, I, boy howdy, I'd be changed. I'd be dramatically changed. No, we wouldn't. Unless we received that thing by faith. And we keep feeding that regularly. The right response when we see something like this, Oh God, oh God have mercy. If God does not have mercy on sinners, how many people will be left for Israel? How many? None. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9. None. If God didn't have a remnant that he had mercy on, us, there wouldn't be anyone. It would just be judgment. It would be death. So this is a sober passage. I find mercy mingled in here very serious that we should prepare for the day of our departure, that we shouldn't trifle with it. And I would argue, as I argued this morning, that we should be more profuse in our speaking of Christ. And in our speaking for Christ, even though it might be something uncomfortable, it's always helpful to bring up the subject that's before us. You will die and meet God. All of us have family and friends. All of us have family and friends that don't know the Lord. We want them to know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. And when we talk about these things, they think we're trifling. It's a serious business. And we can look at people that we love with a tear in our eyes and we can say, Listen, God will bring you to judgment. I'm begging you for the sake of Christ, be reconciled to God in Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.